Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to thank each of you for being here. We thank you. Um, it's very timely. In 2009, the Obama administration shifted the direction of U.S. Burma policy, taking a leap of faith that an approach combining engagement and pressure would help usher in democratic reform where sanctions alone had failed. Although many were skeptical of such a shift, Burma's 2010 elections provided an opportunity to test the credibility of a more proactive engagement approach. And in the ensuing years, the United States worked to balance engagement with the military junta and the democratic grassroots movement. Undoubtedly, this engagement strategy had a positive effect on the trajectory of Burma's democratic reforms, including the 2015 election that brought the Democratic opposition to power. And while the 2015 election was historic, Burma's democratic transition has been a work in progress. Along with its complex ethnic and cultural history, the Burmese military continues to control key ministries and large swaths of the economy, which is why there was some concern in 2016 when the Obama administration unilaterally rolled back most of the restrictions on U.S. engagement with Burma. A year into this new policy, the question is, was this too soon? The Burmese economy remains weak and projected flows of U.S. investment have not materialized. Human rights regulations are untouched, structural reforms have not progressed, and the peace progress is stagnant. In recent weeks, we've also witnessed the appalling images of atrocities being committed by the Burmese military against the Rohingya minority. Hundreds of men and women and children systematically killed. Hundreds of thousands of people fled as their homes burned. We continue to hear the truly heartbreaking accounts of human suffering. International frustration at Burmese government's failure to protect against such atrocities is even more heightened, given decades of hope staked upon the de facto leader, Ms. San Suu Kyi. Of course, our first, our first priority must remain the humanitarian situation, including half a million women, men, women, and children who fled to Bangladesh. I also think we should not shy away from an honest assessment of the direction of U.S. policy towards Burma. Last year, I raised specific concerns with Ms. Suu Kyi about her government's treatment of the Rohingya, one of the most vulnerable populations to human traffickers around the world. And I publicly shared my shock and dismay at her dismissiveness of these concerns, an attitude she has maintained even in the face of unfolding humanitarian crisis and mounting international criticism. Her failure to acknowledge the seemingly systematic campaign of brutality by the Burmese military continues to undermine the civilian government and Burma's democratic transition as a whole. The United States should not abandon Burma. However, it may be time for a policy adjustment. I hope to have a candid conversation here today about the trajectory of current U.S. policy towards Burma, including the role that Congress can play in encouraging democratic reform and addressing humanitarian efforts. Uh, I want to thank you again for being here. I want to take, uh, I think it's Merkley's birthday today, is that right?
Yes, Mr. Chairman. Yes, sir. Uh, as, as much as I, I can't I, I believe can tell, you're I older. I can tell you were not paying attention to my opening statement, and I just wanted to know if you could listen, if you'd listen. And I understand you're getting ready to take also a Codell to, to uh, Burma. Is that correct? We're certainly hoping to put that together. Thank you. I'd well, like to invite all the members of the committee to, uh, to join us. To our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Thank you. Well, to, to Senator Merkley, first of all, happy birthday, and you really know where to go to celebrate a birthday, so we appreciate your, <laughs> your, um, your willingness to take that uh, trip. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much for holding this hearing. Now it's Burma, another country that's committing ethnic cleansing, another country under the watch of the international community that's allowed to perpetrate an atrocity. Make no mistake about it, atrocities are taking place in Burma. We have a humanitarian crisis. We have perpetrators who expect impunity. And there's no reason to doubt that, in fact, that may, in fact, occur. This is ethnic cleansing. I know that the administration is evaluating that as we are holding this hearing. Ethnic cleansing is defined by the United Nations Commission of Experts as rendering an area ethnically homogeneous by using force or intimidation to remove persons of given groups from an area. Half of the population of the Rohingyas in Burma have left. 600,000 out of 1.2 million. There's been a systematic burning of their villages. This didn't just start. It's been a campaign that's gone on for a long period of time. Since 1982, law denies them citizenship, even though they have been residents for generations. They're denied freedom of movement. They're denied freedom of education. They're denied health care. This has been a systematic effort to destroy an ethnic community. And once again, we see this happening. And once again, the expectation is, well, it's far away. We'll just let it go along. We got to be outraged about what's happening. We need to see the international community come together and say, no, we will not let this continue. That we'll hold those accountable that are responsible that we'll provide the humanitarian need immediately, that we'll stop this type of conduct in a civilized society, cannot occur. Yes, I think it's genocide. I know there'll be some discussion about it, whether it's genocide or not. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. That's what's happening. They're trying to destroy the population. Well, people are arguing intent. What else are they doing this for other than the purity of their country and their lack of tolerance for a minority population? For decades, the Burmese government has systematically oppressed the Rohingya people. That is the fact. And they have deliberately failed to integrate the population into the general population. As UN High Commissioner of Human Rights Zeed correctly stated, 
that decades of persistent and systematic human rights violations have almost certainly contributed to the nurturing of violent extremism with everyone ultimately losing. They complain about extremism. They're creating it. In my opinion, we are witnessing a military-sponsored ethnic cleansing campaign on the Rohingya, and it will take significant engagement from the international community at the highest levels in partnership with the Burmese civilian government to address and to hold perpetrators accountable for these horrific acts. Unfortunately, the Rohingya crisis is not the only vexing challenge Burma faces. The Burmese military continues to hold significant influence in politics and in the economy. The peace process which we sought to end, the long-standing civil war in the country has stalled. There are significant reports of human rights issues such as human trafficking, free, free speech infringement, and political repression. The chairman's right. The state counselor was here. She's an impressive person, but she's not taking on the challenge. She's not responding to the crisis in her own country. The military controlled Burma today. That's unacceptable. That's why we impose sanctions, because of military control. Sanction relief was given for what? So people can be ethnically cleansed? I agree with the chairman. We, we need to not only reevaluate, we need to have a policy in regards to Burma that we understand that addresses these human rights violations, that reevaluates our position as far as having normal relations with Burma and the release of our sanctions. The president will be attending the ASEAN sum the summit very shortly. Will he be mentioning the Burma and human rights as a top priority during this trip? I certainly hope so. And Mr. Chairman, I do want to compliment the Bangladesh government for keeping the borders open. That's been the one bright spot. But there is a humanitarian crisis of the refugees in Bangladesh that we all have to respond to. So I am looking forward to hearing from our witnesses. I thank each of them. They all have very distinguished records and have great confidence in their expertise on the subject. But I do notice that on a subject as important as this, it would be nice to have at least one witness that was confirmed by the Senate uh, that brings that degree of importance from the administration on this subject. And lastly, I would ask consent that numerous statements from NGOs about this situation be made part of the record. Without objection, and thank you for your uh, strong opening statement. Uh, you and I were together, I guess, at Vice yep. President Biden's home when it was very evident uh, that uh, the titular head of you will of the country just is very dismissive as it relates yeah. to this whole group of people. So, particularly uh, on the trafficking issue, which I remember you brought up, there was no reality at all to what was going on. Our first witness is Mr. Patrick Murphy, Deputy Assistant of Secretary for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the Department of State. Thank you, sir, for your service. Our second witness today is Mr. Mark Storella, Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Population Refugees. Migration at, and Migration at the Department of State. Thank you for your service, sir. Our third witness is Ms. Kate Somvong Siri. That was an approving smile. I did that correctly. Thank you. <laughs> Acting Deputy Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at the U.S. Agency for 
international development. Thank you for your service. If each of you could uh, summarize in about five minutes, any written materials you have will be entered into the record without objection. We thank you again for your service and, and helping us with this difficult issue. And if you just go in the order introduced, that'd be great. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members uh, of the committee. Burma has emerged from a decades-long struggle to defy authoritarian rule and to transition to a democratic society. However, a devastating humanitarian crisis in Rakhine State has exacerbated the suffering of ethnic Rohingya and other populations and threatened this otherwise peaceful transition, as do other long-standing challenges that the elected government authority civilian authority inherited a mere 16 months ago. Although the new government is committed to ending conflicts and improving the prospects for all the diverse populations of Burma, today's hearing illuminates the fragility of this democratic transition. On August 25th, Rohingya militant attacks on Burmese security forces and subsequent violence and massive displacement occasioned by the military's disproportionate response have created a crisis that demands our undivided attention. Our efforts seek to end the violence, support the displaced and their return home, obtain accountability for atrocities, and address the perennial conditions that sparked this most recent colossal population movement of over 600,000 people to Bangladesh and several hundred thousands internally. President Trump has discussed the situation with other leaders. Secretary Tillerson called State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi to reaffirm support for the emerging democracy and to urge action on this crisis. Vice President Pence denounced the military's heavy-handed response at the UN, where Ambassador Haley called for an international role in ending the violence. Our ambassador in Burma has engaged government and military leaders. I visited Burma since the start of this crisis, including Rakhine State, and met with Aung San Suu Kyi, other government and military figures, and displaced populations. We have consulted with many countries, including Burma's ASEAN neighbors. Our collective message to Burma stakeholders is clear. End the violence, protect civilians, expand humanitarian and media access, hold those guilty accountable, repatriate safely those who have fled, and cooperate with the international community. We've also encouraged collaboration between Burma and Bangladesh and Burma's coordination with UN agencies to overcome mistrust and missed opportunities for international help. Although the crisis persists, our engagement is yielding some results. On October 12th, Aung San Suu Kyi laid out goals for repatriation and humanitarian assistance, resettlement, and peace and development. We are engaging with her government to implement its commitments to reach these goals. Burma recently sent a senior official to Bangladesh to discuss return of refugees to Burma, and more senior contact is scheduled this week. A top UN official visited Burma last week to address the UN response to the humanitarian and human rights aspects of the crisis. I traveled to Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Other senior US government officials have engaged across the region, building support for constructive diplomatic engagement. We welcome ASEAN's decision to activate its own humanitarian assistance mechanism for Rakhine State. As we engage Burmese stakeholders and others, we know that a prerequisite to repatriation is assurances of security. Accordingly, the Department of State 
has identified and announced new and ongoing actions to pursue accountability for those who have committed violence, including, among other measures, suspending travel waivers for military leaders, assessing Jade Act authorities to consider economic options available to target individuals associated with atrocities, finding that all units and officers involved in operations in Northern Rakhine State are, pursuant to the Leahy Law, ineligible for US assistant programs, rescinding invitations for Burmese security leaders to attend US-sponsored events, maintaining an embargo on military sales, consulting on accountability options at the UN, the Human Rights Council, and other venues, pressing for access for the UN fact-finding mission, and exploring accountability mechanisms under US law, including global Magnitsky-targeted sanctions. While our immediate efforts must focus on the crisis, failure to address the long-term causes of instability in Rakhine State will only result in a future replay of this tragedy. It is thus crucial that we support Burma in implementing the recommendations of the Rakhine Advisory Commission, led by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, to address underdevelopment, shortcomings in services, access to justice, and a citizenship process for all people in Rakhine State. An emerging democracy of 54 million people, Burma is located between China and India. The country's success is important to us, to Burma's diverse populations, and to the region. Burma's longer-term viability depends on civilian control over the armed forces and other reforms to end violence and the potential for international terrorism, the very ingredients associated with the current crisis and other ongoing conflicts. We must also find ways to support those courageous voices within government and society who seek a better future. In doing so, we look to partner with Congress on Burma as we have done across successive administrations for decades. Mr. Chairman, we thank this committee for its leadership and bipartisanship collaboration. Thank you, thank you very much, Mr. Estorella. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting us to this important hearing. I'm grateful for the opportunity to update you on how the US government is targeting life-saving humanitarian assistance and on the challenges we face ahead. The violence in Rakhine State continues to devastate vulnerable populations within Burma and cause families, mostly women and children, to flee for their lives. The attacks on August 25th and the violent reaction that followed prompted more than 600,000 people to flee Bangladesh, bringing the total number of Rohingya in Bangladesh to roughly one million people and forced further displacement inside Rakhine State itself. The magnitude and speed of this displacement make it one of the most dramatic humanitarian crises in decades. In Burma, our number one humanitarian priority is gaining access to those in need in Rakhine State. Burma's civilian government has committed publicly and privately to provide humanitarian assistance to all communities in effective areas through the Red Cross movement. The movement has stressed to the Burmese government that it will not be able to fully meet humanitarian needs and the UN agencies and international organizations and non-governmental organizations will also need operational space. We emphasize at all opportunities to Burmese officials at all levels of government the requirement to allow humanitarian assistant, assistance to reach those in need. We continue to press the government and the military, both publicly and privately, 
to end the violence, to protect the security of all communities, and to allow Rohingya refugees to voluntarily return to their homes after Burmese authorities ensure they can do so safely. The responsibility remains with Burma. We greatly appreciate the government of Bangladesh for opening its doors to those fleeing the violence, many of whom arrived after walking for days in need of food, water, shelter, and medical care. The monsoon season has exacerbated the situation as flooding has made aid delivery even more challenging. In every meeting with Bangladesh officials, we thank them for allowing refugees to cross into Bangladesh, and we urge them to uphold humanitarian principles while balancing their own security concerns. In addition to our diplomatic engagement, the United States is providing humanitarian assistance through our UN and other humanitarian partners to help vulnerable populations affected by the Rakhine state violence. The UN issued a revised appeal with an estimated $434 million required for emergency response in Bangladesh to meet needs only through the end of February 2018. Thanks to the support of this Congress, in FY17, the United States contributed nearly $104 million in assistance to displaced populations in Burma and for refugees from Burma throughout the region. Of this funding, the Department of State's contribution totaled nearly $76 million, three quarters of the total U.S. humanitarian response, including nearly $34 million in emergency assistance to address this latest crisis. This allowed partners on the ground to respond immediately, as thousands of refugees were arriving daily to the already established and newly established camps in Bangladesh. Our contributions provide life-saving assistance, food, shelter, water, sanitation, health, and core relief items, both inside Burma and in Bangladesh. We also target assistance for victims of gender-based violence and particularly for vulnerable children. Yesterday, in Geneva, 35 countries pledged $344 million to meet the ongoing need. The United States is not carrying this burden alone. In responding to this crisis, the State Department's primary concerns are protection and achieving meaningful, durable solutions for those who've been displaced, including the chance to go home again in safety and dignity when conditions permit. The U.S. government humanitarian assistance provides an important lifeline until this possibility becomes a reality. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, we are grateful for the generosity of the Congress and the American people who make our assistance possible. We will make the best possible use of it. Thank you, and I would be happy to answer your questions. Thank you, and thank you for your work. Ms. Samvan Siri. Yes, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. The violence in northern Rakhine state has resulted in massive displacement and humanitarian needs both in Burma and neighboring Bangladesh. This is a humanitarian crisis that not only imperils the lives of thousands, but also marks a decision point for Burma's political and military leadership with the whole world watching. In response to the crisis, USAID is providing humanitarian assistance on both sides of the Burma-Bangladesh border. This humanitarian relief is in addition to our ongoing development assistance, which supports civil society, good governance, economic development, and the country's challenging peace process. Through these programs, we're working to address the underlying conditions and fragility that helped create the cycle of violence, including this most recent crisis. We're deeply concerned about the horrific human rights abuses, 
as we've discussed, more than 600,000 people have fled the recent violence and have sought refuge in Bangladesh. Given the enormity of this influx, stark challenges remain to adequately respond. The people fleeing over to Bangladesh, many women and children arrive, as you've heard, only with what they could carry. They require urgent life-saving assistance, including safe drinking water, sanitation facilities, emergency food assistance, and shelter. Inside Rakhine State, there's also an unknown number of internally displaced persons in need of assistance. In FY 2017, the United States provided nearly $104 million in humanitarian assistance for the displaced in Burma and the region, including in Bangladesh. Through USAID's Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and Food for Peace, the agency provided nearly 28 million of that assistance, and we expect to continue responding in fiscal year 2018. In Burma, our main challenge is not the lack of resources, but a lack of access. Since the August 25th attacks, many of USAID's partners were forced to suspend their work due to the military security operations in Rakhine State. Insecurity and government restrictions have prevented humanitarians from reaching people in need. False and misleading rumors about the Rohingya, spread sometimes by official government information, have contributed to that volatility. We continue to call upon all parties to allow unhindered humanitarian access, and we urge the government to allow media and human rights monitors to access and assess the afflicted area. The United States has stood by vulnerable communities in Burma for decades. The country's recent emergence from decades of isolation and the establishment of a formal USAID mission in 2012 has allowed us to expand our development programs to more effectively support those in Burma who seek greater freedom, prosperity, and dignity. Today, USAID works in Burma to strengthen democratic institutions, foster national reconciliation and peace, improve the lives of the people of Burma by increasing the access to better health services and economic opportunities and USAID continues to support an inclusive peace process and support civil society. Let me be frank. The path we face ahead is by no means an easy one, and the development challenges in Burma are complex and deep-rooted. During this period of crisis, it remains in the US government's interest to continue our support for Burma's democratic transition, while addressing the root causes of conflict in Rakhine and other parts of Burma. This support is critical to helping the civilian government of Burma to sustain the transition and deliver on the dividends of democracy that the people of Burma expect. The latest violence has exacerbated the existing human rights and humanitarian crisis impacting the lives of thousands. We must be honest and forthright in the assessment of the situation and clear on what we expect as humanitarians and as Americans. In the long term, our development efforts must continue to address the underlying drivers of the violence. But in the immediate term, until the conflict is resolved, we shall remain resolute in our efforts to alleviate the immeasurable suffering of the Rohingya and all affected communities. We call on all stakeholders to end the violence and seek a lasting resolution to this conflict. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you all for your testimony, and I'll turn to Senator Cardin. I also thank you for your testimony. If, if I could just get a yes or no answer on your personal views, whether what's happening there is ethnic cleansing. It'd be, I understand administration is going through a process, but I'd like to get your view whether you believe this is ethnic cleansing or not. Just yes or no would be helpful. 
Uh, thank you, Senator. If you'll permit me just a slightly more elaborate no. answer. My bosses have said it appears to be ethnic cleansing. I am of that view as well. I think clarity is important here. I'm asking your view. Unfortunately, I'm not in a position to make the determination. You are correct that we are referring to a process to lead to that determination. In the meantime, we conclude that there have been atrocities, massive displacement, depopulation of villages that cause us great concern. Therefore, we are pursuing all avenues for accountability, hypothetically, a determination of ethnic cleansing will not change our pursuit of full accountability, sir. Could you answer yes or no, whether you believe it's ethnic cleansing? Senator, I've worked in humanitarian affairs off and on for 30 years, and I have witnessed over that time terrible things that have happened. In this case, we've seen so-called clearing operations that have resulted in the clearing of 603,000 people from their homes to a foreign country and probably 100,000 people from inside Burma uh, to other displacement. I'm not in a position, like my colleague, uh, to characterize it uh, today, but I do want to say that uh, to me this very closely resembles some of the worst kinds of atrocities that I've seen over the course of a long career. Would you try yes or no? Maybe I can get one out of three. No, unfortunately. The role of our organization is not to define legally what is happening. The role of our organization... I asked your personal opinion. I'm You're not in the position to offer my... Okay, let, let me just make... Look, I think this is one of the problems we have. Clarity is important. This is ethnic cleansing. It's pretty clear. And if we don't say it, it will happen again and again and again. Now, I'm for the efforts for stopping the violence. And I support all the international efforts for humanitarian assistance for those that are in Bangladesh and those who are displaced in Burma. I'm for pursuing the peace process so people can, are not going to be further killed. Absolutely. It's got to be our top priority. But if we don't do something to end this cycle of violence with impunity, it's going to happen again. Next country will do it. And Mr. Murphy, I appreciate your view that you want to impose sanctions against the military or, or use Magnitsky, which is a, I, I, you know, a bill that I'm very proud about. But where are the generals being held accountable criminally for what they've done in murdering people, raping people, burning villages? Where is the accountability of those who are responsible for directing this? Senator, I agree with you. Accountability is vitally important. What is the United States doing to make as, sure As helping? I said in my statement, Senator, we have announced measures to pursue accountability, including the consultation with the very organizations that have those tools available to them, the United Nations, the UN uh, Human Rights Council, among others. We are taking measures ourselves, but we have to admit we have very limited influence and leverage. We don't have a normal relationship with this military. We haven't for decades. Um, in, in the process of lifting sanctions, we have isolated restrictions on the military that remain in place. We will take additional measures, as I've said, to restrict travel here, to explore measures how we can sanction individuals found to be accountable. And that's an important, I think, path forward for us to take. Who's in charge in Burma? Is it the Civilian or military? It's an excellent question. 
And the answer, of course, like Burma itself, is very complicated. This is a power-sharing arrangement. The civilian elected government, for the Who's first time— Who's responsible for the atrocities that are taking place now? Is it the civilian fault or the military? Who's primarily responsible? There are many contributors to violence and human rights abuses. The security forces hold the greatest responsibility for protecting civilians, and they have failed. However, we must point out, there is vigilante action, civilians conducting violence against other civilians. The Rohingya militants that Encouraged attacked on August Encouraged by the military? In some cases, they are acting in concert with security forces, yes. In other cases, independently. So do we make a mistake in relaxing the sanctions because Burma was moving away from a military government? Senator, I think the decision to lift the national emergency was a reflection that sanctions had run their course and attempting to achieve a transition. But you're talking about imposing new sanctions. We're talking about targeted, targeted measures to Against hold the individuals. the military, you consider that targeted. It's a, that's, that's an institution of its government. I, I would agree with you if you're talking about holding people criminally responsible for their criminal activities. I don't see that coming. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Young. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our panelists for your attendance here today. Uh, I, I agree with the ranking member. We need to speak with moral clarity on this matter. The United States clearly needs to lead. Ambassador Haley, I was, I was really proud of her. She assessed that the Burmese government is conducting a, quote, brutal, sustained campaign to cleanse the country cleanse the country of an ethnic minority. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has referred to the situation in Burma as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. I hope our government, I, I understand your positions and, and we're in the course of an assessment internally, but I hope our government speaks with uh, moral clarity on this matter. We often refer to the international community and the international community, some have characterized as, as kind of a, an oxymoron phrase. And, and right now, if the U.S. doesn't lead, I don't think the international community is going to end up in a position where they are not only condemning this sort of behavior, but uh, acting boldly to uh, address the needs uh, of the affected populations. There are nihilistic nations out there. There are relativistic nations. There are those who will passively stand by and, and watch these sorts of actions continue unless the United States uh, leads on, on these and other matters. So um, thank you uh, to my colleague, Senator Merkley. He worked with me on a letter that we sent off uh, to Ambassador Haley regarding this very issue of ethnic cleansing in uh, Rohingya uh, some days ago. 21 of my colleagues signed on to it, including the ranking member. Have each of you reviewed that letter? Okay, thank you. I saw an affirmative nod there from each. Um, we called on the Burmese government to permit the safe access uh, to journalists, to UN fact finders, and to humanitarians. And uh, Secretaries Murphy and Storella, I noted that in your testimony, you indicated the number one humanitarian priority is to gain access uh, by the humanitarians uh, to uh, those in need in the, in the Rakhine state. Ms. Samvang Siri, uh, you call the lack of access uh, the main challenge, and you say that due to the restrictions imposed by the Burmese authorities, uh, that access is not happening. Why, why is the lack of access to affected populations the main challenge? And, 
What is the Burmese precise role in hindering that access? Senator, thank you for your question and for the letter from you and so many of the other members. Um, highlighting that issue of access for journalists and humanitarians is absolutely essential, and thank you for including that in your letter. Very constructive overall. The reason it's the main challenge is because right now, let me divide it up, there's Northern Rakhine State and Central Rakhine State. Right now in Northern Rakhine State, which is the area that's most deeply affected, the only international NGO that has access is the Red Cross movement. And they have very limited abilities. They have said so themselves that they cannot provide fully the range of support that is needed. Our partners, the UN agencies, stand by and are ready to provide that support to the affected populations but cannot do so. In central Rakhine State, there's more um, ability to provide access and help, but it's also severely limited. We've recently been able to restore some of that humanitarian service, but still operating at only about 50%. Your question about the role of the Burmese government in it specifically, it's that the Burmese government authorities are the ones who provide the permits that are necessary to access these areas, and they have not given it. Um, another complicating factor is even when there are travel permits, there's excessive layers of bureaucratization, um, planning, work plans, and also high levels of ethnic tension in those areas um, that make it very difficult to deliver the aid. And if I could just add one more thing on the importance of access, not just from the humanitarian side, but from journalists and media, this gets exactly to Senator Cardin's point on accountability. Unless you are able to access these areas and actually see and document what is happening, that makes accountability in the future very difficult. So that's why we as a humanitarian organization continue to call for and appreciate your support of that. Well, I, I've got 30 seconds left. I do want to commend the administration. I mean, the, the, the administration has generally spoken forcefully about the need to for humanitarians to gain access. Uh, and on the diplomatic front, I, I feel like uh, thus far they've been pretty strong. Secretaries Murphy and Storella, you, you did indicate in your prepared statement that the Burmese government's commitment to provide humanitarian access was encouraging. And I, to me, I, I'm not particularly encouraged. Neither gestures, nor statements, uh, nor some futile uh, you know, uh, actions at this point uh, are enough. We need bold action. I hope each of you will communicate that uh, to your, your Burmese counterparts every time you're interacting with them. I will be visiting with a representative from the Burmese government tomorrow. I will certainly be uh, send, delivering that strong message. And uh, thanks again for your service. Thank you. Senator Markley. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for uh, holding this, this hearing, because I think it's so important that we put a very bright spotlight on this horrendous situation. And I'll ha be happy to use the term that, that our representatives from the executive branch are not willing to use, this ethnic cleansing. 288 Rohingya villages destroyed, and not one word from our president. Thousands of children slaughtered, not one word from President Trump. Thousands of women raped. Thousands of men and women shot as they fled villages. Villages surrounded and starved, 600,000 refugees, and not one word from our president during this horrific situation. Are you recommending to the president he speak loudly and forcefully on this issue if each of you could tell me yes or no? Senator, as I noted, the president has spoken with a number of leaders about the situation. Excuse me, the president has not made a public statement. Are you recommending that he take a forceful public statement 
to shine the international spotlight on this issue? I believe the administration has spoken with clarity and Thank moral you. clarity. You are not saying yes or no, so I assume the answer is no. Are you, sir, recommending to the president that he speak and take a public position on this? Senator Merkley, uh, thank you very much for the question. We are recommending that we speak forcefully and directly about the kinds of atrocities that have Thank you. Can we expect such a statement from the President in the next week? I'm not in a position myself. Okay, to thank you. But I, th I appreciate you pre pressing for that. Yes, likewise, um, obviously, as an agency, we don't we defer to our State Department colleagues lead on this. But yes, um, as an agency, we do continue to call on all parties to speak forcefully, to do what we can to end the violence, to gain humanitarian access, and to hold people accountable. But you can't really call on all parties to speak forcefully if our own president is not speaking forcefully. I have here a mission report of the UH, the United Nations Human Rights Office of High Commissioner. Uh, September 13th through 24th, if I can enter that into the record. Without objection. I'd like to quote a, a piece of this, and they use the term Myanmar, so Myanmar or Burma. Myanmar security forces purposely destroyed the property of Rohingya, scorched their dwellings and entire villages, not only to drive the population out in droves, but also to prevent the fleeing Rohingya victims from returning to their homes. The destruction by the Tatmada, that is the Burmese military, of houses, fields, foodstocks, crops, livestock, and even trees render the possibility of Rohingya to returning to normal lives in the future almost impossible. It also indicates an effort to effectively erase all signs of memorable landmarks and geography of the villages and memory in such a way that return to their lands would yield nothing but desolate and unrecognizable terrain. Information received indicates that the Myanmar security forces targeted teachers, and cultural and religious leadership and other people of influence in an effort to diminish Rohingya history, culture, and knowledge. Does that sound like ethnic cleansing to you? Don't everyone rush to answer. Uh, Senator, um, first let me say that um, through the support of the United States Congress, the United States government is the strongest supporter of UNHCR not only financially, but also through our diplomatic engagement around the world. We support what the High Commissioner is doing very strongly. Um, we believe that uh, what he has described are, in fact, um, a, an accurate description of the atrocities that have taken Thank place. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because I believe that if you carry that message to the highest levels of the department, that you believe that this is an accurate description that we will see forceful representation of America responding to this. I recall our Secretary of State talking to me when he was uh, being considered for nomination, and he said he was going to provide moral leadership guidance. And yet here we have this horrific instance, and we have virtually no voice, no pressure, no, I mean, very polite words about supporting the evolving democracy in Burma and stuff, almost things that sound like, well, we're, we think they're doing a good job trying to address this. They're not doing a good job. The military, and none of you testified that the military is behind this. This is an act not by random forces. This is an act by the government of Burma, and we need to respond with enormous moral clarity and force on this issue. And I hope you will make that happen. Thank you very much, Senator Gardner. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to the witnesses for being here today. Uh, this is a very important hearing. Uh, I think all of us recognize the crisis in Rakhine State is a, nothing short of a humanitarian catastrophe, and the United States must be resolute in stopping this violence, condemning this violence, assisting the refugees, and seeking accountability for the many crimes that are being committed. Um, I, re I reiterated that very message personally yesterday in my meeting with Burma's ambassador to the United States, and will continue to do so. Deeply saddened and outraged at the events uh, the last several months. We all are, and we all have to be. Uh, I visited Burma in May of 2016, had a long, productive conversation then with Aung San Suu Kyi, as well, well here in the United States as well. Military leaders I met with, including the Commander-in-Chief, and expressed our condemnation in the strongest terms possible, what's unfolded there for decades. The recent tragic events threatened to upend the hopeful trajectory of democratization that we've talked about here today and reform in Burma that I witnessed firsthand during that visit. And while we must address the crisis in Rakhine State, we must also look to the broader questions of whether U.S. policy toward Burma has succeeded to date in paving the path to peace, stability, and democracy in that country. And I know that that's what this committee hearing is about today, and I thank you, the witnesses, for participating in it. But I'm struck by several of the answers uh, that we've received uh, to some of the questions that have been asked. Uh, I guess I want to start following up on something that Senator Cardin said to Mr. Murphy, Secretary Murphy. Last year, um, last Congress, and the decision was made to lift the sanctions uh, against Burma. Will that be reversed? Was it a mistake? Senator, I appreciate your longstanding interest in, in Burma, and I think that your visit there does equip you to understand many of the challenges this country faces. I, I want to take the opportunity to speak with the moral, moral clarity. There's been some questions about where the administration is. We have stated in our testimony today we have witnessed terrible crimes. There is increasing evidence that security forces are associated with vigilante action. These individuals will be held accountable. We will pursue accountability with all of the tools available to us. I have also stated that the military security forces have reacted in a disproportionate manner and bear the greatest responsibility for protecting local populations and have failed, failed to do so. Our sanctions program was designed to uh, see the expression of the will of the Burmese people. We saw a successful election. An elected government just 16 months ago began uh, very significant efforts to address elusive national peace, end conflicts around the country, and indeed, try and address the plight of the Rohingya people. That does not absolve this government of criticism for its shortcomings. We are looking for all stakeholders to take actions. We also have to realize what this government is up against. I don't take their position, I don't defend their position, but the elected government does not have full authority over the military. In Rakhine State, ethnic Rakhine leaders are opposed to humanitarian assistance, they are opposed to citizenship for the Rohingya. They hold incredible sway over the political space there. The entire country has prejudice and racism directed at the Rohingya. Any government is going to have difficulties in overcoming those obstacles. So we have to support those in government who see a better path forward. And indeed, the Rakhine Advisory Commission is a perfect example. This government invited the formation of the commission and has adopted and accepted the recommendations. We want to support those because they provide the best path forward for the Rohingya people. Broad sanctions, those are under discussion, but I have to allow 
broad sanctions could very well make those vulnerable populations that still remain more vulnerable, susceptible to the same violence and criminal activity that has taken place thus far. We have to be very careful with our approach so that we can achieve the objectives that we're talking about today. Better protection for these populations, safe return, accountability for those who have committed atrocities. I, I expressed my concern to this committee over and over last Congress. Uh, I even put a hold on Ambassador Marcial uh, over my objection that we lifted the national emergency order and provisions um, at State Department uh, that were put in place. And I just don't understand, I still do not understand to this day, how we think somehow we are better off uh, having done that uh, and the actions that we've seen by, in Burma, how the Rohingya are better off as a result of that. It seems like we gave a carrot uh, without any uh, return uh, to a behavior that would improve uh, the plight uh, of the human catastrophe that's unfolding there. Uh, China, obviously border state, very important economically. What is China's role? What have they done uh, as we've seen this uh, unfold? Senator, I think first on, on sanctions, we are talking about targeted measures to try and achieve behavior change and protect civilians. We have to recognize in terms of broad sanctions, um, the United States was the, the last country standing with significant restrictions. It was hurting our interest. It was hurting the ability of this elected government to have a good start in addressing the problems that had been ignored by 50 years of military authoritarian repressive rule. It does not mean Burma had reached perfection. We knew this would be bumpy. We knew there would be many challenges. We have to look at the tools available to us to uh, encourage behavior change and proper actions. Proper actions are required by all in the international community, including China. We would hope as a member of the Security Council, China could join us in recognizing the military's disproportionate response has exacerbated these problems. And China needs to work with others on the Security Council to understand that the instability that's being created could affect the neighborhood, including China's own interests. Has China publicly condemned the actions of the military in Burma? I don't think we've seen very encouraging signs from China with regard to the Burmese military. We are looking for a better posture on their part. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Well, Thank you all very much for being here and for your ongoing work. I, I share the frustration that you're hearing among my colleagues on this committee about our inability to better affect the outcome of what's happening in Burma. I understand that there have been allegations of sexual violence, um, of rape, of other actions specifically targeting Rohingya women by members of the Burmese security forces. Can you tell me, any one of you, if we have raised those specific concerns of gender-based violence with the Burmese military and the government? Yes, Senator. We share your concerns. The reports, primarily coming from refugees, very credible NGOs, would suggest a wide range of abuses and atrocities, including sexual violence, violence against women and children. These are particularly vulnerable populations within a larger vulnerable population of the Rohingya. We've expressed this concern with all the, le the leaders and stakeholders. And I want to emphasize, Senator, this is not a monolithic government that has full authority uh, and the no, ability. No, I understand so, that. So yes, directly with Aung San Suu Kyi, um, we have had conversations through our ambassador to Burma, Scott Marcial, with the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Min Aung Lai. 
we have expressed our concerns with other stakeholders, including local populations, local leaders in Rakhine State. And we have pointed out that these kind of abuses, this kind of displacement, threatens the transition to democracy, creates a much bigger risk for the attraction of international terrorism, and could set Burma back. So it's in the country's interest, not only to protect local populations, but to pave a path forward that's in the betterment of all 55 million people. Well, I, I appreciate that. Unless you have a, a different response, Ambassador Storella, I'm gonna move on. Senator Sheen, I'd just like to say that our ambassador, Marsha Bernicat in Bangladesh, herself went and visited with victims of gender-based violence so that she herself could hear their testimony. Through the support of this Congress, we are providing assistance to thousands of people who have been victims of that violence. Thank you. Um, well, thank you. I do appreciate that. And this week, Senator Isaacson and I are going to reintroduce the International Violence Against Women Act, and I think it speaks to the importance of that legislation as we look at how to address these crimes that are happening not just, unfortunately, are happening not just here with the Rohingya, but in other places around the world. Um, I understand that there are an estimated 69,000 pregnant Rohingya refugee women in Bangladesh. I'm not sure if that number is correct, but that um, the main assistance that they're getting is from the UNFPA and um, I certainly support that. I support um, the efforts that UNFPA makes around the world to help um, pregnant women and um, women, vulnerable women who are in need of pre- and postnatal care. I guess, Ambassador Storella, can you tell me if the administration supports UNFPA's efforts here and how we do that? Senator Sheen, uh, the United States does support efforts uh, for women who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, we are working with a number of different agencies to ensure that there are things like gender-appropriate latrines that are available. But uh, we're not supporting the efforts of UNFPA, is that correct? Um, the United States um, is limiting its support for UNFPA at this time. Thank you. That's unfortunate, given the number of women in um, vulnerable positions who really need that help. Um, I don't know if any of you can answer this question, but I do know that I've heard from people um, who have, in New Hampshire and other places, who have expressed concern about why Aung San Suu Kyi has not spoken out more forcefully uh, on this circumstance. Mr. Murphy, I guess this is for you. What's your assessment of the situation there? Why do you think she's not spoken out more forcefully, and what do you think would happen to that power-sharing arrangement if she did? Senator, my, my parents are residents in New Hampshire and asked me the same question. Uh, I can't speak for Aung San Suu Kyi. What, what I do know in Burma, one of the fundamental problems we're facing in Rakhine State is widespread prejudice and racism directed specifically at the Rohingya. There are also many populations that have suffered for decades from discrimination, other ethnic minorities, including inside Rakhine State. The ethnic Rakhine, who as I said earlier, dominate the political space, have suffered from centrally directed discrimination. It's a very complicated environment. We would like to see more champions, more vocal voices for the Rohingya and other repressed populations. And we know it's a very complicated environment. 
speaking out on behalf of the Rohingya is, is a dangerous proposition right now in Burma. It must be acknowledged. I don't think that can withhold us from criticizing, from urging uh, broader human dignity and respect for each other. Our particular message is not just to the government, also to the armed forces, local ethnic leaders, but also the broad members of the Burmese nation. Reflect on your own suffering, your own voyage to overcome authoritarian rule, and think about your fellow human beings. The terrible treatment of the Rohingya is a real Achilles heel for this country and its transition. We need a broad public campaign of education for all Burmese to understand they're in this together. Rohingya are part of the fabric. They need to find a way forward for citizenship, for basic human rights. And that's a broad message. And we're looking not just for a singular champion, but for all Burmese to understand human dignity is a real important aspect to this crisis. I think that's very well said. So what kind of a message do you think it sends to if, if people? I, could I just ask one more question? As long Mr. as you Chairman. don't ask him to answer it. That's but. fine. Um, it's a rhetorical statement. <laughs> what kind of a message does it send to Burmese leadership, military and civilian, when in the United States of America, we have a travel ban on Muslim-majority countries members coming into this country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, thank you very much. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I wanna thank all three of you for your service. I, I think what you're seeing here today is uh, some considerable frustration and outrage amongst members of this committee, and there's no, there is no difference in our feeling, all of the committee, in that regard. I mean, we all share this frustration, we all share this outrage. I wanna thank you for, for your leadership on this issue and for speaking with the moral clarity that, uh, uh, that you have spoken with here today. I appreciate that you don't communicate directly with the president and can't pound on his desk and tell him what he should say or shouldn't. Some people have tried that, not very successfully, I've, uh, I've noticed. But you're, uh, as the State Department, certainly uh, you speak uh, with the uh, uh, full force and uh, effect of the uh, United States uh, foreign policy behind you, and for that, we appreciate that. Our, our job, of course, in this committee is uh, is to help craft uh, foreign policy, and uh, that will be done, uh, I'm sure, as we move forward through resolutions or, or, or statutes that, uh, that address this problem. I think today you've been very clear in assessing uh, how difficult this is to do, and one of the things that I find uh, uh, that... Uh, that shows the difficult uh, nature of this, and I, these are my words, not yours, but it seems like uh, you're facing an entire population, uh, a country, that uh, possesses a prejudice that uh, we're, uh, that's not appropriate, obviously, and it's, uh, it, it's manifesting itself in some very bad things. Now, I don't know how you address that. Certainly, sanctions are one way to do that, um, but, uh, Prejudice is not easily overcome, and frankly, I don't know that, uh, that sanctions are something that uh, are going to convince people that they should be thinking differently than, uh, than what they are. But in any event, I'd, I'd like to hear uh, uh, each of you address briefly, if you would, uh, uh, this issue that we're dealing with not an individual, which we frequently are in some countries, not even the, just the military, as we are in some countries, but really the, the civilian government plus the, the population of the country that is uh, really turning a blind eye towards this. Uh, how, do, how do we, have you, do you have suggestions for changing that conduct? Mr. Murphy, let's start with you and work our way down. 
Senator, very much appreciate your, your perspectives. And this current crisis is appalling. Uh, it's sad. It's outrageous. I want to share with you, my frustration doesn't begin with this crisis. It began 20 years ago when I first visited Northern Rakhine State and have worked on and off over the course of my career on the particular challenge of the repressed Rohingya population. It's been a long-standing problem. Unfortunately, of course, frustration doesn't translate to action. We need to take measures to try and achieve behavior change and a path forward. We have identified something new in the current elected government environment, and that is a willingness to try and tackle the underlying challenges in Rakhine State, a path to citizenship, development for all of the underdeveloped populations that reside there. I want to revisit that Rakhine Advisory Commission. Uh, it's no small measure that this commission was formed under the leadership of the former UN Secretary General and came up with 88 very specific recommendations. The new government has embraced them. We now need to see implementation. We need other stakeholders to support those recommendations, including the armed forces, local leaders in Rakhine State. <laughs> those paths forward include cooperation and coordination with Bangladesh, development, um, access to basic government services that have been lacking, most importantly, a path to citizenship. So this disenfranchised population has a means to participate and gain from the benefits that other citizenship uh, citizens enjoy. It's not going to be easy. These recommendations are both short-term and long-term. But we have a government that is willing to do something where previous military regimes simply repressed and ignored. That does not mean this government has taken all the right steps. We are calling on the government to do all that it can to end the violence, stop the hate speech, pave a path forward for return of repatriation, uh, repatriated refugees, and find a way towards national peace. This government has also convened something called the Panlong Conference, which has been unprecedented since the 1940s, bringing together uh, all representatives throughout the country to pave a path forward in ending conflict. As we talk about conflict today in Rakhine State, there's ongoing conflict in the north, in Kachin and Shan states. Burma's been at war with itself nonstop for over 70 years. And this government is trying to achieve some peace. We need to work with those stakeholders who see a better way. At the same time, we've talked about targeted sanctions and measures for those who are not with the program. We have a, to have a measured, balanced approach, I think, Senator. Thank you very much. Um, uh, my time is up. I apologize. I really wanted to hear both of your perspectives also. I, I would just say thank you again for your service. I, I know how disheartening this is as we listen to these facts. Don't give up. Uh, uh, represent us as you have and uh, continue with uh, development of policy that we'll do the best we can uh, to do something about this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to, for the witnesses. This is an important hearing. I'm just um, and I missed a little bit of your opening statements, and I apologize, but I've just picked up on some rhetoric and language that I want to come back to you on. I know the State Department is underway with an analysis to determine whether what's happening in Burma's ethnic cleansing. Just for the record, the French, French President Macron at the end of September said that what was happening to the Rohingya was constituted genocide, and we must condemn ethnic purification, which is underway, and act. And Turkish Pre President Erdogan has also labeled a genocide. Um, I would urge uh, with, with dispatch us 
you know, determining what we think it is and, and labeling it. Um, you talk, I think it was uh, Mr. Murphy, I heard, I heard you use the word, there's vigilante action. When I think of vigilante action, I think of sort of rogue individuals not connected with the government doing things, but this is clearly uh, action that isn't just vigilantes, isn't just an expression of sort of endemic prejudice, but there's official actors involved, including the military, in ways that I think are not deniable. That's not the same as vigilante action, to my understanding of the term. Uh, you also uh, condemned the military's disproportionate response, and I think that's a disproportionate response to the attack on Burmese military. Um, but but I, I don't I don't really view the role of the military, the Burmese military, at least in the accounts I've read, as just being a responder. I mean, I think that they have been a participant and often an initiator of many of the attacks on the Rohingya. And so, you know, I think we, if we want to be careful about language like ethnic cleansing and genocide, we ought to be careful about it. Um, I think we also need to be careful about phrases like, you know, the military is, is a responder or there's vigilante action because I think all the evidence would suggest it's, it has much more of an official sanction and imprimatur than that. Uh, and I guess that's the basis of the, the work underway in the State Department to determine exactly how to label it. I want to ask questions about Bangladesh. I'm the ranking member with Senator Risch on the subcommittee over the region of the world that includes Bang Bangladesh at its eastern edge. These refugees are largely going to Bangladesh, which has its own set of challenges. Could you tell the committee how the flow of refugees into Bangladesh is affecting that country, and are things that we can do to help Bangladesh deal with these refugees? Senator Kane, the crush of refugees entering Bangladesh is unmanageable for almost any country. For a country that's strapped for resources, facing limited kinds of infrastructure, um, and also um, facing difficult weather, it's nearly impossible. I think that Bangladesh has done an extremely admirable job, first by opening its borders, then by working with the international community to permit um, opportunities for assistance to reach the people uh, who are there. One of the most important things that Bangladesh has done is to work with the UNHCR uh, to undertake a registration of those arriving. Um, I spoke with the DCM from the Embassy of Bangladesh yesterday. He told me 260,000 refugees have been registered. 13,000 are being registered per day. And there's about 600,000 that have fled by, by the most recent accounts. 603,000 was mm -hmm. the last count. These registrations are important because they provide protection themselves and also provide the basis for subsequent repatriation when conditions permit. I think that uh, Bangladesh has demonstrated a great deal of um, patience and working with the Burmese authorities. There was a meeting today uh, in which the um, Home Affairs Minister is working of Bangladesh is working with the Burmese to try to pave the way for eventual returns. Um, I think that... And can I, other order of magnitude, yes, is that 603,000, I've heard that is estimated, that's about half of the total Rohingya population of, uh, of Burma, if, if what I've heard is correct. Is that accurate? We don't know the exact population because there has not been a census. However, we believe um, that the 600,000 plus the number who are already in Bangladesh, which brings the total to about a million, is more than half mm -hmm. of the Rohingya population. Okay. From the USAID perspective, could you offer Ms. Um, Samvangsiri on the, the same? The, I'm sorry, Samvangsiri. Yes. Samvangsiri, could you offer your perspective from USAID? Thank you. Yes, so USAID worked closely with um, PRM, which has the lead in the refugee crisis in Bangladesh, and I agree with um, 
Ambassador Sterla's assessment in terms of the Bangladesh's government's um, generosity it already and obviously an impoverished country with a lot of challenges of its own, um, but the ability to take in this massive, massive influx. Um, our program through Food for Peace there is supplementing the efforts in terms of providing much needed food assistance, um, nutrition, and a lot of it just to give you a sense that the challenges uh, to be able to deliver the food assistance, some of the work is going towards coordination and building logistics like roads to actually have enable delivery into this very confined area. Um, the other, one other thing I'll mention in the short time is we do have a robust development assistance program in Bangladesh and we're looking at how to reshape that to help affected communities um, that are broadly in that Cox's Bazaar area. Mr. Chair, I'm likely, I'm not gonna ask another question, but I'll probably do questions for the record to flesh out the extent of activities we're doing to help Bangladesh and other things that we might do. I appreciate your answers. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Chair. Thanks for being here. Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, for holding this important hearing, and to our uh, witnesses for um, focusing us today on the appalling treatment of Burma's uh, Muslim and ethnic minority, the Rohingya. Uh, I'm grateful to all the members of this committee on both sides who have taken concrete steps to address this crisis. Uh, in July, Senator Tillis and I, as the co-chairs of the Human Rights Caucus, uh, held a briefing about the displacement of the Rohingya at that point, relatively early in this crisis, as has just been discussed today. There's more than six 100,000 who fled Burma because of the military's brutality. Um, and there's been a great deal of debate about whether Burma State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi, um, by her silence, is contributing um, to this violence. Uh, on September 17th, one of uh, her fellow Nobel laureates, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, wrote a moving letter in which he said, quote, if the political price of your ascension to the highest office in Myanmar is your silence, the price is surely too steep. A country that fails to acknowledge and protect the dignity and worth of all its people is not a free country. It is incongruous for a symbol of righteousness to lead such a country. Um, I agree with Archbishop Tutu, and I hope the United States will continue um, to speak out, to stand up for human rights, and to call for policies and actions that empower and protect the Rohingya. Uh, so Ambassador, if I might first to you, um, you just uh, answered questions uh, from Senator Kane about um, what's happening on the ground in Bangladesh. Uh, I'd be interested in whether you foresee the Rohingya being able to return to Burma uh, and what, what steps you're taking uh, to urge the Burmese government to recognize and protect them upon their return, uh, whether they will get documentation of citizenship or residency, and what you believe the long-term plan is, both in Bangladesh and in Burma, for their um, safe treatment and care while refugees and their return to their nation of origin, Burma. Senator Coons, thank you very much for focusing on what is absolutely a critical question, uh, the possibility of maintaining the path open to returns. I think the very first thing is we must, under all circumstances, insist that returns must be the goal and that they must be voluntary and that the government of Burma must provide for the security of uh, returning refugees. We have seen some elements of progress, despite an otherwise dismal scenario. Initially, uh, as you know, the government of Burma had said that they would not permit any funds to go to any kind of assistance organization whatsoever. Uh, they denied many of the things that everyone knew was going on. We insisted that those funds would not go to the government, that they would go to humanitarian organizations by the Red Cross. That has now been permitted. The Red Cross now has limited access which is very important because it also shines a light on what's going on there. Over time, we have seen that uh, the statements of State Councilor Aung San Suu Kyi have evolved. In her statement of October 12th, 
She outlined that the goals were repatriation, resettlement, and development. That's in the right direction. We need to keep pushing on that. Um, as I already mentioned uh, in response to the question by Senator Kane, we as an international community have to continue supporting Bangladesh to make it possible for those returns to take place. I've worked on returns in other countries, including 360,000 Cambodians who returned to Cambodia. This is going to require a lot of work uh, at a political level uh, to make it possible, but it also requires working with the key institutions that will be able to monitor and uh, set the conditions to ensure uh, that those returns actually can be voluntary, safe, and dignity. So there is a path, and I think we have to just keep pushing down that path and not give up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm interested um, also in hearing, as I might from Ms. Sambungsiri, about the role religion has played in this crisis and what contribution USAID's conflict mitigation efforts might make um, to keep religious tensions from further exacerbating this conflict. And I think Senator Shaheen asked a, a relevant uh, question, uh, what impact it has on the world response and how our response is seen uh, at a time when there's repeat litigation in our courts and repeat assertion by our president that we need to have uh, a ban on those who might come to our country from majority Muslim countries. Thank you, Senator Coons, for that important question. Part of our work um, in not only Northern Rakhine State, but throughout Burma, throughout the peace process, is sp f focused specifically on this issue of building tolerance, ethnic and religious tolerance, and promoting that. This ties into part of Mr. Uh, Senator Rich's question as well. Um, we do that by building dialogue with local civil society groups. We have found nascent civil society groups who are more moderate in their views but don't have the space to speak out in terms of religious tolerance, in terms of cross-community efforts. And our role is to create space for that, to strengthen those civil society organizations and link them up together. Um, many moderates don't feel safe doing that right now, so I think that is a, is a critical issue. I realize I'm out of time here, but we're happy to provide more information to you on that and exactly what our programs are doing to support that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Um, it's a very important hearing. Uh, it's an absolute crisis that has broken out, and uh, many in, uh, in the Rohingya community who have arrived in Bangladesh following these clearance operations claim that uh, Tatmadaw soldiers entered into their villages and killed civilians, raped women and girls, and then burned down the entire village. International medical teams treating the Rohingya in these camps report that some people bear gunshot wounds consistent with being shot from behind, and some women and girls have injuries consistent with sexual assault. Uh, it is clear the military bears responsibility for these crimes, uh, even if perpetrators at lower levels are unknown. Burma's Commander-in-Chief, Senior uh, General Min, uh, is responsible for these systematic crimes. Why has the administration been reluctant to add General Min to the specially designated nationals and block persons list? Thank you, Senator Markey. We, we share your concern about the abuses and atrocities. There's no reason uh, to discount the credible reporting that such abuses have taken place. And it's for that reason we've announced uh, measures at the State Department on behalf of the administration to pursue accountability. And accountability will apply to all individuals 
and entities responsible for perpetuating the violence and these abuses. Uh, and that applies to the armed forces predominantly, uh, but in answer to a previous question uh, or comment from Senator Kane, there are other actors. Uh, there are the Rohingya militants who conducted attacks on August 25th and subsequently have attacked fellow citizens. Uh, there are local civilians who have taken actions into their own hands, sometimes in concert with the security forces, sometimes, as when I was in Rakhine State a few weeks ago, in their own hands. Uh, that particular uh, circumstance involved attacking a Red Cross shipment, and indeed security forces helped thwart that attack. Uh, that was a, a welcome sign. Um, but there are vigilantes who are part of the equation. Um, all of the military leadership is subject to our restrictions for travel to the United States, subject to our restrictions for any assistance. That applies to Senior General Minong Line as well. The armed forces have responded have, disproportionately. Have, we, have, have you yet imposed a travel ban on General Min uh, being able to visit the United States? Have you imposed that yet? Senator, there is an existing travel ban on Minong Line uh, sub, uh, as a result of his rank and his position. That remains in force, and we will, under no circumstances right now, pursue any waiver for his ability to travel to the United States or gain from assistance from the United States. Okay, so what other steps then would you recommend that we take, given in the very near uh, past, uh, we were, as a government, talking about enhanced military cooperation? with Burma. So that was a signal that was being sent to these people uh, that obviously would have given them some assurance that they would not have to be concerned uh, about any of their actions. So <clears throat> how, uh, how has that been communicated to them? That is, how has, how has the, the fact that my amendment working with other um, uh, members was successful in in having that language struck from uh, the legislation as it was moving uh, through a couple of months ago. Uh, what was the interpretation that they made of that action legislatively? Senator, the reality is that our military-to-military -military relationship with Burma is not normal and has not been for many, many decades. There are many existing restrictions. What we have communicated to the military uh, in, in, in relation to the current crisis is that their path to normalization is obstructed by their failure to protect local populations. There's a conundrum here. Uh, we have to acknowledge it. And we hear this even from government figures inside Burma. The armed forces has been isolated for the better part of half a century and not exposed to international standards, norms, and regulations. There is an argument that they need more exposure to understand how to behave properly, how to be a professional military forces focused on national defense and not abusing its own people. Unfortunately, that's going to be uh, for another day. Under the current circumstances, uh, we are not exploring uh, engagement or enhancing assistance or contact with the military or facilitating any travel. That's a clear message that they have failed to protect local populations and have contributed to and violence. You agree, and you agree with that message? Absolutely. I've, I've delivered that message directly to military figures. And the response is? Look, I think part of the problem here is a failure in Burma among many stakeholders to recognize what's taken place. Massive displacement, failure to protect citizens uh, and, and residents of the country. 
that's part of our messaging, is they need to see exactly what they've done and what the results and repercussions are. I think the message that may resonate the most is that their actions create a greater risk for international terrorism. They think they have a terrorism problem now by virtue of the kind of attacks that took place on August 25th and last year in 2016, which also created population displacement. Our message is that's not a real international terrorism problem. The kind of problem that could visit uh, Burmese territory is a real significant challenge they won't be equipped to handle and they are exacerbating that potential risk with these actions they, now. But it reminds me very much of El Salvador in the 80s where we were giving money to the government and the government had these generals who were actually the leaders of the death squads uh, and even as we were helping them, they were still indifferent to our views about how that money should be used. So I think this is a big issue that we're gonna have to really press harder on in terms of their military and how they are using the resources that they have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very much appreciate your testimony. I have a question, and I know we have some closing comments here, and I want to thank everybody for participating, and I know Senator Merkley, uh, thank you for the trip you're getting ready to take to the area. Obviously, this is all very, uh, if you will, damning to, to the leadership of Burma. Uh, each of you have stated that clearly, and the questions that have been asked have all been in that direction. If, if Ms. Suchi were here, what would she be saying in defense of what has been happening uh, in her own country? Senator, I think it's a fair question, but honestly, I, I can't speak uh, for Aung San Suu Kyi. I can relate to you in our conversations with her. Secretary Tillerson has spoken with her as well. We have tried to impress upon her the need to take key actions. I think we've also recognized uh, that it is a complicated environment. By describing the complexities, that doesn't absolve the government of its responsibility. There are measures the government has taken, which I think she would point to, that we frankly need to support. That's hard to describe in this environment when there's such a crisis underway that behind the scenes there actually is a government that's elected, representing the people, and is taking unprecedented actions, a clear departure from authoritarian military rule. We don't want to behave now in a way that reverts Burma back to military rule. That would not be in the interests of the Rohingya population and other vulnerable populations. It wouldn't be in the U.S. interests. What we do need to do is encourage the kind of actions they're taking now to make a better path for the Rohingya, but we need other stakeholders in the country to support those actions, primarily the armed forces. And also, I hasten to again point out, inside Rakhine State, ethnic Rakhine leaders need to lower the hate speech, realize they need to share this space together. They all need to benefit from better treatment and benefit from development and international assistance, which has been the course of action to date. All international organizations are providing assistance to all vulnerable populations, primarily the Rohingya, ethnic Rakhine, and half a dozen other ethnic minorities in that very complicated space. I think, Senator, fundamentally the bottom line is we want to help Burma succeed. This is an enormous crisis that threatens the transition, could revert Burma backwards in the wrong direction, and it's a challenge. We need to see better leadership. We need all stakeholders to contribute to that process. Thank you. Senator Cardin. I just really wanted to thank the witnesses uh, for their efforts here and for what they're doing in representing our country. I do want to make a couple comments. 
government has a responsibility. I understand the responsibility of all parties, but when you assume the government responsibility, you have to show leadership, and we have not seen that from the Burmese government. Number two, in regards to return, Ambassador Storello, let me just make this comment. If your village has been burnt down, it's going to be difficult to see where you're returning to. And if you're going to return to a situation where you're going to be in a detention camp, that may not be an acceptable safety issue and permanency as to how long that lasts. So I would just urge us to be very careful. Yes, we want the right of return. We want the people to be able to return to their communities, but we have to realize it's not only the ethnic problems, we also have physical problems and, and safety problems on, their, on the return. And lastly, Secretary Murphy, I just want to emphasize, I've heard this argument many, many times about we don't want to impose sanctions that could hurt the people we're trying to help. That's like chalk on a chalkboard on a board for me. It's just I heard that argument about hurting the Jews in the Soviet Union if we impose sanctions, and the Jews are much better off because we did impose sanctions. I heard that about the blacks in South Africa that we should engage rather than try to use economic pressure. I heard that about Iran that we shouldn't apply pressures against Iran. We should engage. Well, we were able to engage Iran because we imposed sanctions. So I would just urge us to understand that sanctions are much preferred than using military, and in many cases they have allowed us to get results without the use of our military, and that we shouldn't be shy in using America's economic strength. Now, it's Senator Murphy's birthday, so I'm aligned to ask one question post. Um, I'll just do a one-minute comment if okay, I could. Thank you. Yes, Two things that I'm very concerned about, Secretary Murphy. Um, one is that in regard to our military contacts with Burma, we are, we are currently hosting uh, folks from the military in comprehensive security response, uh, transitional security cooperation, advanced security cooperation. So we do have, we do have military officers from, from Burma. And um, I, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, the military organized the burning of nearly 300 villages, often the villages surrounded by a platoon, set fire, and then shoot people as they, as they flee. Uh, I think we need to think about all the levers we have to, to, to pressure the military. They are really in charge. We can talk about the civilian side of Burma, but it is the military that runs things, which is part, part of the reason that uh, some folks say we should we should be careful about criticizing Aung San Suu Kyi because she doesn't have that much power. Well, let's the military has the power. Let's use and look at those levers. The second thing is twice you've used the term vigilantes, which is the official excuse. You do not a few people just acting randomly on their own do not surround hundreds of villages and shoot people in a coordinated action. I think use of that term gives cover to the military in a way that's totally unacceptable. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony and service of the country. Uh, we're going to leave the record open until the close of business Thursday. If you could answer them fairly promptly, we'd appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, we appreciate very much you being here, and I know that this committee is going to want to uh, we'll stay on top of this. We look forward to Merkley's report when he's back. Uh, with that, uh, the meeting is adjourned.